0: A friend once told me about a store that he entered. I I don't really recall what kind of store it was or what the product was. I just remember what he said about the assistant there, the helper that came to him. And he was asking about a particular object, and so it didn't have a price tag. He said, how much is that? And the clerk said, well, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. And I believe the person really had two things in mind when they were saying that. Number one, if you're so worried about your finances that you have to ask how much it's going to be before you decide to buy it, you don't have enough money to pay for it. But I think there was a second meaning behind that statement, and that was that if, if you don't want it so bad right now that you've decided no matter how much it costs you're going to buy it, then, then you don't want it bad enough to pay this much for it. And I think that this concept may apply to discipleship and being in Christ, counting the cost. If we have to ask how much, we probably can't afford it. A lot of folks have kind of a romantic notion when it comes to discipleship. It's kind of like in my neighborhood, just a few doors down from us, somebody is selling, I believe it's a 1968 Canary Yellow Mustang with a... Convertible top. It's beautiful. And we have a romantic notion. Every time I drive by that house, I think about, man, I would love to drive that. I'm not even a car guy, but I would love to drive that car, to own that, go down the interstate with the top down and, and, and the, the wind whipping through my little bit of hair up here. And, but then I called and found out how much it cost and decided that that nice romantic notion, as neat as it would be to be able to pull up into the parking lot and y'all all all gawk at my canary yellow 1968 Mustang, it's just not worth, to me right now, the price that they're asking for. it. And so because of that, well, I'm I'm just not going to buy it. And I fear that some folks have kind of that same romantic notion about discipleship, it's It sounds neat, it sounds wonderful to have some kind of connection with Jesus, but when we actually find out exactly how much it costs, we're not always sure that we're willing to pay it. Luke chapter 14 describes the importance of counting the cost. In Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 28, the scripture there says in Luke 14 and verse 28, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with ten thousand to meet him who comes against him with twenty thousand? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's important for us to count the cost. Basically, what Jesus is telling us is that if we're not willing to count the cost, and once we hear the cost, if we're not willing to pay, then we might as well not even get started. I'd like for us to talk a little bit about counting the cost today. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we lift you up because you are worthy of praise and adoration. You are the great and awesome God who has created all things and it's by Your will and by Your word that these things are set in order and continue on from beginning until now and will continue to do so until by Your word they are destroyed. We pray that You would help us to count the cost, to think about eternity, to recognize what's at stake with our souls and our destiny and help us to be willing to pay whatever the cost in order to be Your child, Your Son's disciple. Help us to love You and to serve You and to realize what You've done in Your love for us so that we might joyfully pay the cost. Thank You for forgiving us through Your Son. Please forgive us and help us to turn away from the tempter. Help us to avoid his traps. Deliver us from his temptation. We love You, Father, and we thank You for loving us. Through Your Son's name we pray. Amen. I think the first thing we need to ask when we're talking about counting the cost is, what is it that we're buying? Before we look at the cost, let's just think about what it is that we're buying. We walked into the store, and here's this object on the table. What is it? Well, the very first thing that we need to recognize is that we're buying a relationship with Jesus. We're buying the knowledge of Jesus. In fact, Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul commented, on this issue of knowing Christ. And in verse 8 of Philippians 3, he said, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is having a relationship with the Master. And what an amazing relationship that is. Our modern method of schooling and education doesn't highlight the discipleship model very well. So we're, we're not very familiar with that. But the concept of discipleship was that in the time of Jesus, Jesus walked the face of the earth. When you had teachers who like ones that we've heard of, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they would set up shop in a city and they would try to teach people so that they could learn from their wisdom. And if you impressed the master enough, you were allowed to be a part of his close entourage. You were allowed to say, I'm one of his disciples. And when you could say that, some of the popularity and some of the reputation that the master had was shared with you as his disciple. No doubt, the disciple was never as great as the master, but if you could say, I'm a disciple of Plato, you could walk with a certain amount of pride. Imagine what that means then. If we can say that we have that kind of relationship with Jesus, I know Jesus, I'm connected to Jesus, I'm a disciple of Jesus. And some of that reputation and some of that glory is passed on to us because of our relationship with Him. That's that's what we're buying. That's why we're paying the cost. But secondly, we're buying forgiveness. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, as Jesus established the supper, and He handed out the fruit of the vine, He took the cup, said, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus died so that our sins could be forgiven. What have we done? It doesn't matter. Jesus died to forgive us. Have you lied, lusted, cheated, stolen, murdered, committed homosexuality, sexual immorality, surfed the Internet when you shouldn't have, listened to things you shouldn't have, gossiped, slandered? Committed idolatry, been materialistic, greedy, had outbursts of anger and wrath, been abusive. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus died to forgive us. That's what we want. We want to get rid of that guilt. All that guilt that is bearing down on our shoulders as we're trying to walk around with that and be righteous people that serve the Lord. Jesus died so that all that could be taken away. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 demonstrates that to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Beginning at verse 9, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What have you done? It doesn't matter. Jesus died to give you that forgiveness. And as we're walking into the shop, that's what's resting there. That's what we're talking to the clerk about. How much does this cost? I want a relationship with the Master. I want forgiveness. But there's a third thing that we're getting. Not only forgiveness of the guilt. But Jesus is offering us freedom from the power of sin. Romans chapter 7 talks about the power of sin in our lives. We've already sinned over and over again. And sin now has a foothold in our lives. And it's hard. Just because we're baptized doesn't mean that goes away. That that power of sin is still there. But Jesus had offered us freedom. In fact, Paul talked about it in Romans chapter 7. As he pointed out, Let's let's begin in verse... Let's see, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, verse 14, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Sin gains control in our life. If we're, going to, if we're going to give ourselves over to sin, it's going to gain control and it's going to take over and we're going to hit that point where we don't understand it. Why does this keep happening? I keep saying I'm not going to do it, and yet I keep doing it. But what does Paul say in verse 24? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus can deliver us from that sin. That's what discipleship does. It provides us not only with forgiveness from the guilt, but it provides us with freedom from the control of sin and Satan as they're trying to take over our lives and force us to do the things that we don't want to do. That's what we're buying. And of course that leads to that ultimate goal, heaven. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Heaven is waiting for those who will be protected by the power of God through faith. That's what we're wanting. That's what we're looking at when we're asking the clerk, how much is that going to cost? A relationship with Jesus, forgiveness of our sins, freedom from sin, and a home eternal in heaven. What does that work? We're going to take a look at the cost. But before we look at it, let me share with you if after hearing what it is that we're purchasing, if you're sitting back and still waiting to find out how much it costs to decide if you really want it, I'm just going to warn you, you probably can't afford it. If you're not sitting there saying, I don't care what's on the list, it doesn't matter. Whatever God said, I'll give it up because I want that relationship with Jesus. I want the forgiveness of sin. I want freedom from sin. And I want the home in heaven. And it doesn't matter to me how much it costs. I'll give anything up, no matter what He asks. I'm going to. If, if, if that's not what's going on in your mind, I'm just going to warn you. It's going to cost more than you're willing to pay. Let's take a look at the cost. How much does it cost? Look in Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 46. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 46, Jesus told two parables. He said in verse 44 of Matthew 13, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What's it going to cost? Everything. Everything. It's going to cost everything. But that's very easy to say, isn't it? It's very easy for us to talk in very general terms and say it's going to cost you everything, and we could sing the imitation song, and we can all go home talking about all that we've given up for God, but in reality, not ever actually give anything up. So we want to take a look at a little more specific explanation of what everything entails. Before we do that, I'd like to share with you an illustration. This comes—I got it from Brent Hunter's Personal Work 101. He attributes it to a book called Disciple by Juan Carlos Ortiz. I just. I'd just like for you to hear this story. I want this pearl. How much is it? Well, the seller says, it's very expensive. But how much, we ask? A very large amount. Do you think I could afford to buy it? Oh, of course, everyone can buy it. But didn't you say it was very expensive? Yes. Well, how much is it? Everything you have, says the seller. We make up our minds. All right, I'll buy it, we say. What do you have? He wants to know. Let's write it down. I, I have $10,000 in the bank. Good, $10,000. What else? That's all. That's all I have. Nothing more? Oh, I have a few dollars in my pocket. Well, how much? We start digging. Let's see here. 30, 40, 60, 80, 100, $120. That's fine. What else do you have? Nothing. That's all. Where do you live? He's still probing. In my house. Oh, yes, I have a house. The house too then. He writes that down. You mean I have to live in my camper? You have a camper? That too. What else? I have to sleep in my car. You have a car? Well, two of them. Both of them become mine. Both cars. What else? Well, you already have my money, my house, my camper, my cars. What more do you want? Are you all alone in the world? No, I have a wife and two children. Oh, yes, your wife and children, too. What else? I have nothing else. I'm left alone now. Suddenly the seller exclaims, Oh, I almost forgot. You, yourself, too. Everything becomes mine. Wife, children, house, money, cars, and you, too. Then he goes on. Now listen. I will allow you to use all these things for the time being. But don't forget that they are mine, just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up. Because now I am the owner. Everything. That's what it costs. But let's go down and get a little more specific. I've got a list of several things. We're going to move very quickly here, but I just want you to see, and this is probably not exhaustive, but I hope it gives us an idea. It's going to cost us our pride. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If my spirit is lifted up too high, then I'm not going to be looking to Jesus as I ought if I want to be His disciple. It's going to cost me my pride. It's going to cost me my self-rule. I don't get to be in control anymore. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I'm no longer the one making the decisions. I've given that job over to Jesus. He makes the decisions. It's like Jesus living through me. I no longer have control. I don't get to go where I want, do what I want, think what I want. Control has been handed over to Jesus. If I want to be Christ's disciple, if I want that relationship, if I want forgiveness, if I want freedom from sin, if I want heaven, I have to give up my self-rule and my self-reliance. We're not going to read Romans chapter 7, verse 14 through 25 again, but that's really what that passage is all about. It's about who am I relying on? If I'm going to rely on myself, you see, because as Americans we pull ourselves up by the bootstrap and we make a decision, I'm going to do this and I'm going to white-knuckle my way through it and as long as I'm relying on myself, I'm always going to end up exactly where Paul did when he was doing that, oh wretched man that I am. I'm doing the things I don't want to do. I'm not doing the things I want. That's what happens when we rely on our own strength because we're weak. So if we want to be disciples of Jesus, we have to give up ourselves reliance, and rely on Jesus and on His will and on His strength. We have to give up our fleshly passions. Galatians chapter 5 talks about that. Galatians chapter 5. The chapter that talks about the fruit of the Spirit that we discussed in our Bible class this morning talks as well about the works of the flesh. And in verse 24 it says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Back in verse 19, it had talked about some of those works of the flesh. It said, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. We've got to get rid of those fleshly Passions, the things that are driving us in our life, the things that cause us to like the popularity and the fame and the pleasure, all of those things. We've got to give all of that up to follow after the spiritual things of God, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. We've got to give up our resources. That's really what our story just a minute ago kind of focused on. But 1 Timothy, Chapter 6 points out our relationship with material goods. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 say, 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 and 10, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then in verse 17 it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. We've got to give up our resources. That house we live in, those cars that we drive, the clothes that we wear, the computer that we have, none of those things belong to us. The money that we're making every week or month from our job, that doesn't belong to us. That's God's. And it's supposed to be used to serve His people and to glorify Him. We've got to give the control of that up. We don't get to buy what we want and do what we want with our resources. Our home is the headquarter of hospitality. Our car is the means of transporting others who need help. We no longer have control over our resources. It's going to cost us our friends. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 4. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 4 says, With respect to this, they are surprised we do not join them in the sl- same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Interestingly, as was pointed out in our class on Wednesday night here in the auditorium, this is not necessarily a decision that says, I'm not going to hang out with y'all anymore, as much as it is that if we're going to be the disciple that Christ wants us to be, they're not going to want to hang out with us anymore. It's going to cost us our friends. But not only our friends, it's going to cost us our family. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 verse 35. Matthew chapter 10 verse 35 says, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I want you to understand this. I'm not just saying that if your family is getting in the way of serving God, you have to give them up. I'm saying it's going to cost us our family because our closest relationship now is no longer with someone in our family. It is with Jesus Christ, and that always takes precedence. It's going to cost our family. Now, I realize with some, it will be more extreme practically than with others. But we just have to understand Jesus comes first. It's going to cost us our personal goals. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Beginning at verse 7, Paul described his life. He said, "...whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord." For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I've counted all things as loss, and I I neglected to read what I should have, and that's beginning at verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law a Pharisee as to zeal a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law blameless but whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ he had all kinds of goals within his Jewish community as a Pharisee he was going to be a leader of of his countrymen he was on the fast track to being on the council with the Sanhedrin he was going to be a man among men he had to give all of that up we have to give up our personal goals. Why? Because our life is no longer about us. Now, listen, I understand if in glorifying God you get promoted at work, that's fine. But if your goal in life is promotion and work, you're not being a disciple. you understand the difference there? Our life is no longer about how far we can get in our career path and how much money we can make. If God blesses us with that as we glorify Him by working as though working for Him, that's God's business. But that's not our goal. Our goal is to serve God. And we're giving up our personal goals because we want God's goals more than our own. Prejudices. If I'm going to be a disciple, I've got to give up my prejudices. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. But if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If I'm partial to white people, if I'm partial to Americans, if I'm partial to Southerners, if I'm partial to those who are middle class or higher, James chapter 2 and verse 9 it says if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. We've got to give up our prejudices if we're going to be Christ's disciples, because the gospel is for all. We've got to give up our time. We know Matthew chapter six and verse thirty three by heart. It says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and And He'll give us all of these things. But you know, seeking first God's kingdom and God's righteousness takes time. And if I'm going to seek that first, that means that it's taking time away from other things that I want. As somebody once said, we have enough time to do anything we want. But we don't have enough time to do everything we want. We're going to have to prioritize. And if we're seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness, there's other things we might like to do that we just won't have the time to do. Television shows we won't have time to watch. Entertainments and recreation that we won't have time to get to. Some even worthwhile goals that we just don't have time to do. Because first, we're seeking God and His kingdom and righteousness. What does it cost? Going to cost us our leisure? Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Beginning at verse 8. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. What the Hebrew writer is pointing out to us is that while we're in this life, we're not in our rest yet. Our rest comes in heaven. Now, no doubt, I understand that God allows us periods of rest and rejuvenation, but the general rule for us as Christians is work. And it doesn't matter how old we are. You don't get to retire from Christianity. if we want to be disciples of Christ, it's going to cost our leisure because we're going to have to be workers. It's going to cost our independence. And I know we hate that. Here in America, we like to tell folks, my business is none of your business. You quit bugging me. You don't have a right to say anything to me about how I'm living. You don't get to talk to me about what I've done or what I haven't done. I'm independent. You mind your own business. Now, I recognize, of course, that Christians aren't busybodies and they're not nosy, but we remember Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Do you remember when we actually studied that passage in particular? Your translation may say provoke. Another translation says stimulate, stir up, spur on. Think about those words, provoke. What do we normally mean with that? To anger. Stir up. What do we normally mean with that? They're just causing trouble. Spur on. What is that? That's taking a a sharp metal object on the back of your foot and slamming it into the flank of a horse. That's what spurring on is. That's what we're supposed to be doing for one another. That's how we're going to get to have love and good deeds. By the fact that we actually are in one another's faces, challenging one another to grow in Christ. It's going to cost us our independence. We don't get to look at one another and say, that's none of your business. If we want to be disciples, we're going to have to give that up. Are you ready for this one? It's going to cost us our privacy. James chapter 5 and verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Confess your sins to one another. I'm not saying this means we have to air our dirty laundry to every person that's a Christian. But it does mean that if we really want to get freedom from our sins, we've got to find somebody who's going to hold us accountable, that we're going to talk to, and we're going to let them know, this is what I'm going through and this is what I need help with. We don't get to just hold it within. If we always keep it within ourselves, we're always going to be at that point of wretched man that I am. If we really want to be a disciple of Christ who's going to be set free from our sins, we've got to learn to give up our privacy with at least one other person. Probably more. And I can just tell you, that's tough. And finally, although I'm sure this list is not exhaustive, but I think you're getting the idea. It's going to cost us our eyes and our hands. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 29 says, Matthew 5 and verse 29. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and verse 29 says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, we understand the figurative nature of this passage. We know that in reality, this is not saying that to become a Christian, I have to pluck out my eye and cut off my hand. But it is saying that anything. No matter how good it might be by itself, anything that comes between me and God, anything that is an obstacle in my path to heaven, I need to cut it off and throw it from me. Television, Internet, movies, books, relationships, money, anything. If it's coming in the way of me and God, I need to get rid of it. No matter how painful it is, no matter how hard it is, no matter how radical this spiritual surgery is, I need to endure it if I'm going to live and go to heaven. This is what it's going to cost. Everything. Look again in Matthew 13 and verse 44. Because there's one word in Matthew 13, 44 that I find really surprising. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In his joy. Did you catch that? He didn't sit back and say, oh man, I really want that treasure, but I have to give all this up. and Man, I hate to do that. It was joyful to him because he realized that the treasure that he was going to get was worth far more than what he was going to give up. And he rejoiced to sell everything off. Before we close, let's consider the cost of not buying, though. Because you see, there there are some rewards for not buying. If you don't buy, you get to be in control of your life. You get to do what you want, go where you want, eat what you want, drink what you want, sleep with what you want. You get to party if you want to. You get to be lazy if you want to. You get to procrastinate if you want to. And you can tell other people to mind their own business. You get out of my life because you don't get to say anything to me. I'm allowed to live however I want to live. I get to spend my money the way I want to spend my money. I get to use my time the way I want to use my time. I can do what I want in my own house. I can do what I want with my own car. I can wear whatever kind of clothes that I want. And as I go through all of that, you better believe there's going to be lots of, And lots and lots of pleasures all the way along. And it's going to be a fun ride. But how long is that going to last? Ten years? Twenty-five? Fifty? A hundred? But then what? We know the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16. As the rich man cried out to the Father, cried out to Father Abraham, he said, why don't you just send Lazarus over here with just just a drop of cold water to to, to put on my tongue because I'm in agony in this flame? That's the cost of not buying eternal torment. Is it worth it? I'll tell you what. Just, just understand this. If you don't buy, no amount of fun and pleasure for the next however many years is going to be worth the eternity in hell and torment. But on the other hand, Heaven will be worth anything that you have to give up right now to get there. And it's your choice.